Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash HTD. This independent learning activity is funded by Hoffman LaRoche Limited. If we look at the available therapies for first line advanced HTC, the original trial first showing the benefit of tyrosine kinase inhibitor was the SHARP trial. Following that, there was nearly a decade of no positive studies in the HEC space, and serafinib was the standard. Lenvatinib was compared to serafinib in the REFLECT study, and in this trial, the overall survival was non-inferior. However, other endpoints, including progression-free and overall response rates, favored the experimental agent. More recently, there have been two studies of immunotherapy-based combinations that have been published, and we're going to delve into the details of that recent data leading to the adoption of combination immunotherapy in this setting. The first study to read out was Embrave 150, the phase three study looking at atezolizumab in combination with bevacizumab in unresectable or metastatic HEC patients. There were some specific enrollment criteria that was novel to this study. Patients were required to have an EGD within six months of being randomized on study, and they could not have varices that were at high risk for bleeding. Varices that were managed would have made them eligible for trial. Looking at the primary outcomes, the updated analysis demonstrated overall survival that we have not seen in the HCC space of 19.2 months compared to that of serafinib. 13.4 months. We can see an impressive hazard ratio of 0.66 for overall survival. The improvements seen in PFS are more modest. However, that seems to be an overall trend that we'll see in looking at immunotherapy-based combinations in HCC. At essentially every endpoint, we see better responses in the combination arm. If we look at duration of response at the 12-month mark, it's relatively similar but again, favoring the experimental arm. But at 18 months, essentially 50% of the HCC patients receiving atezolizumab, bevacizumab, continue to have response, whereas serafinib has dropped down to half of that, which is fairly striking and important. There's a large variation in the duration of therapy. And as a result, there's more time on the experimental arm to accrue side effects from treatment. We can see with that in mind that AEs leading to withdrawal from any component was more common, not surprisingly, in the combination arm than it was in the serafinib arm. There's large differences in the type of toxicities depending on the class of agent used. On serafinib, the historical standard, clinicians expect to see the number of side effects that are likely important for quality of life. Looking at atezolizumab, bevacizumab, we can see hypertension largely related to bevacizumab on its own. Grade 3, 4 bleeding was found to be slightly higher in the experimental arm compared to that of serafinib. Do recall that these patients all would have required a pre-study enrollment EGD to rule out varices. And if they had varices, those varices would have needed to be managed. The bleeding rates here are 
probably related to a number of factors, one being the use of a VEGF monoclonal antibody, but as well the fact that patients were allowed to have main portal vein invasion. And we know that patients with main portal vein invasion are at slightly higher risk of having bleeding events due to changes of portal hypertension. Now we're going to transition over to the Himalaya study, looking at Dervalumab in combination with Tremulimumab for a single dose, as well as Dervalumab monotherapy. And this was compared to serafinib. There was a fourth arm on the study that was closed early, and the data is not presented here. This study did not require an EGD prior to enrollment, but specifically main portal vein thrombosis was excluded on this study. If we look at the experimental arm, so this is Dervalumab in combination with a single dose of Tremilimumab, otherwise known as Stride, we can see a median overall survival, 16.4 months, compared to that of 13.8 months for serafinib. Again, hazard ratio of 0.78, and this met the superiority threshold. If we then look at the outcome of single agent Dervalumab, we see similar results with a median overall survival of 16.6 months, again with the serafinib at 13.8. Hazard ratio is slightly less robust at 0.86, and for that reason, this was not superior, but rather non-inferior to that of serafinib. Now looking at the PFS endpoint for Himalaya, there were not really any large differences seen between the three arms here. Similar to Imbrave, the improvement seen in overall survival does not seem to be translated into PFS data. Both this study as well as Imbrave used Resist 1.1, and this may play into some part of it. Looking at response rates for the three experimental arms, what's important here from a patient perspective is that the two immunotherapy arms are superior to serafinib in Himalaya. However, the risk of progressive disease is relatively the same. The median duration of response favors the combination immunotherapy versus serafinib. So we'll now look at the safety data for Himalaya grade 3-4 treatment-related adverse events, there's a higher rate seen with serafinib. That is not that surprising because we are comparing a daily administered medication versus a monthly infusion. And treatment-related adverse events leading to discontinuation was highest in both the combination immunotherapy arm as well as that of serafinib. If we look at hemorrhage, and again, in this study, the patients at the highest risk for bleeding of main portal vein invasion were excluded. We can see that this study had very low rates. Looking at specifically TRAEs that are immune-related grade 3-4, we can see that in the stride arm, there was nearly a doubling of the grade 3-4 rates compared to that of Dervalumab, which is interesting that a single dose of CTLA-4 can increase toxicities. So today we have reviewed the two trials, Imbrave 150, as well as Himalaya, which offer the largest overall survival that we've seen to date using combinations of immunotherapy. Both of these options have pros and cons, and we have to keep in mind that these studies had slightly different enrollment criteria. Obviously, for most patients, clinicians would want to offer immunotherapy-based combinations going forward. However, there's always going to be a subset of patients who either have a contraindication to immunotherapy-based treatments or patients may prefer oral systemic therapy. All in all, 
it's excellent to see in the last several years, multiple therapy options appearing in the HTC space, whereas for decade prior, we essentially had one option and no other alternatives. We know that in Canada, HCC is the second fastest increasing cancer in terms of incidence. And most patients with advanced HCC have a five-year survival rate that is less than 20%. So for patients with advanced stage BCLC-C, HCC, we now have choice in the first-line systemic treatment. And with choice comes responsibility in terms of understanding which patients are best suited for which potential therapy. And given the multiple disciplines whose input is necessary for the optimal management of patients with HCC, this very much represents the typical paradigm in which we would consider multidisciplinary involvement. With that theme, I'm going to invite Dr. Brumania to share some cases with us, and then we're going to discuss in an MDT fashion between a hepatologist and medical oncologist how we would approach these kinds of scenarios in real life. Thanks, Dr. Gill. The first patient that we'll be discussing is a 34-year-old female with chronic hepatitis B cirrhosis. When we saw her after screening ultrasound and subsequent MRI, she was found to have an 8-centimeter HCC with no tumor invasion. Her AFP was 37,000 and her child pube status was A. So there's two factors to consider. One is the underlying disease, which is chronic hepatitis B cirrhosis. And so this is someone that we would place on antiviral treatment. Secondly, we have discussed this case at our multidisciplinary HCC rounds. So certainly at MDT, one of the questions that often comes up is, is this something that would be amenable to local regional treatment or is there a recommendation for systemic therapy? And often from a systemic therapy lens, making sure that there isn't any extra hepatic spread as well as exclusion of bony metastases is important. This case is obviously complex. We have a healthy young female with a large tumor and a really high AFP who has grim prognosis. If you just look at the numbers, we wanted to be aggressive in order to get her into transplant criteria. But most centers use a combination of total tumor volume and alpha fetoprotein or use the Milan criteria. In both circumstances, this patient was out of those criteria. Ultimately, we felt that Y90 was sufficient to possibly downstage according to the legacy trial. Eventually, this young patient was transplanted once they were downstaged into our AFP and total tumor volume criteria. Let's move on to the second case here. We have a 68-year-old with hepatitis C-related cirrhosis. He has achieved a cure from the hepatitis C. He's retired but active and does not smoke, consume alcohol. He presented with a large 14-centimeter HCC with tumor invasion, and we discussed his case at our multidisciplinary tumor board rounds, and the case was made for systemic treatment. Dr. Gill, how would you approach this patient in terms of selection of systemic treatment? And is there any investigation that you would require to begin the journey on systemic treatment? From my perspective, we would want to know what the patient's functional status is, as well as their hepatic reserves. I think that for treatment decision-making, we still rely on child pew scores. Knowing that patients with child pew B, so a score of seven or greater, are unfortunately not eligible for first-line systemic therapy. So those would be the first two clinical criteria. Yeah, excellent question. So he happened to be an ECOG zero, then he didn't have any ascites or encephalopathy, so he'd be a child pew A status. 
The next big question is, is this a candidate for what would be the preferred first-line approach, which is a tezolizumab and bevacizumab? If a patient is not eligible for a tezolizumab and bevacizumab, then the alternate go-to would be thinking of a TKI therapy, most commonly lenvatinib in the setting. So then I would worry about any history of autoimmune disorder that would preclude immunotherapy or any contraindications to bevacizumab. And so are we concerned about bleeding risk in this gentleman, particularly variceal bleeding in a patient with cirrhosis? Right. What we are referring to is the black box warning of bevacizumab. These patients must undergo routine endoscopic surveillance for varices. And what we really worry about is clinically significant portal hypertension, which is a biomarker for complications such as variceal bleeding and development of ascites. Typically, that was done through a transjugular approach of measuring portal pressures. This is often difficult to obtain in most centers and really delays treatment. In the last decade or so, we are starting to rely more on FibroScan, which is a non-invasive measurement of fibrosis and can correlate with HVP measurements. From a hepatologist perspective, we often will look at platelets and then we combine that with FibroScan. And so if a patient has platelets greater than 150 and the FibroScan is less than 20, kilopascals. We can avoid an endoscopic screening. As we know, the risk of clinically significant portal hypertension is low. And so for this patient, given that his platelet counts are above 150 and that his fiber scan is less than 20, he's unlikely to bleed from the bevacizumab treatment. That clinical guidance is so important because I think we all struggle with capacity and when to scope all of these patients in a timely manner. So in BC, we have also implemented guidelines to risk stratify patients where potentially endoscopy could be avoided or the risk of finding varices that would increase the risk of bleeding would be quite low. If I could ask you a follow-up to that. So if the patient did end up requiring endoscopy and they did have evidence of varices, the question about treating and managing them so that they could be eligible for bevacizumab therapy. It's not a definite go, no go. What do you normally do in practice? That's an excellent question. There's two streams really that a patient can take with large varices. One option is put them on a beta blocker, which reduces portal pressures and reduces the risk of variceal hemorrhage. The other is endoscopic variceal ligation, which can increase your risk of bleeding. However, there are some mitigation strategies like putting them on a PPI or even adding sucralfate, which can reduce that. Thank you, Mayur. I'd like to share another case with you and the audience about a 68-year-old woman with known hepatitis B on therapy with tenofovir. She had a previously resected stage 2 colon cancer, but on CT surveillance had a new 3.6-centimeter lesion that was identified in segment 8 of the liver. And there was a plan to take her to surgery, but a follow-up CT scan about two months later showed marked enlargement of this lesion now over 9 centimeters with new portocaval adenopathy. So she was commenced on first-line treatment with atezolizumab and bevacizumab, and she tolerated it quite well at her first disease evaluation at three months, had evidence of a partial regression of the disease within her liver objectively. About six months into it, prior to her eighth cycle, her pretreatment blood work drawn as part of our routine monitoring for immune-related adverse events showed low morning cortisol and she reported fatigue. She was started very quickly on steroid supplementation with hydrocortisone and was referred to endocrinology. She was diagnosed with a secondary adrenal insufficiency. It was graded as a grade two immune-related adverse event. 
And the recommendation from endocrinology was to continue hydrocortisone and that after steroid repletion, we could resume her atezolizumab. This is an excellent case and just shows you the remarkable response that you can have in some patients with a TZO-BEV. So I think from a multidisciplinary perspective, our primary goal is to support you and the patient to ensure that the patient can get through treatment. Immune-related adverse events can creep up on us at any point during or after treatment. In this case, she had an endocrine-related event, but obviously we worry about hepatitis in patients who may have compromised underlying hepatic reserve as well. And I think in terms of immune-related adverse events, the key has always been early identification. So making sure our protocols include pretreatment blood work, baseline chest x-rays, morning cortisols, and TSH at least every four to six weeks in these patients because they may not always declare them themselves symptomatically. And then depending on the grading of the toxicity, it may require discontinuation or holding of treatment and higher doses of steroids or immunosuppressants. But in most cases, patients may be managed as in this case and remain on treatment. I mentioned earlier that with choice comes responsibility. And I'll also say that with choice also comes complexity. I started my practice where serafinib was our only treatment option. And now we have, thankfully, many options to consider for patients with advanced HCC. But it really comes down to making sure that we are managing these patients responsibly in a multidisciplinary fashion and in a way that allows for them to garner the most benefit they can from treatment while minimizing the risk of toxicity. So this has been a really informative discussion for me, and I thank you, Mayur, for your input. Thank you as well. It was a pleasure. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.